The Curbsiders Podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like moral hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Welcome back to the Curbsiders, and uh, sorry, audience, Paul and Stuart both not here tonight. Uh, Paul was here for a second, so you might hear his voice a little bit, but uh, technical difficulties, he couldn't stay for the whole show, but we did have a great conversation with Dr. Bahuma Tatanji, returning guest, fantastic guest, you all know her, you remember her. Tonight we talked about the varicella zoster virus, specifically shingles, and now to introduce my co-host, the great Sarah Phoebe Roberts. Sarah, how are you doing tonight? I'm great. How are you, Matt? I'm doing well. And since Paul's not here, I think it's only fitting that you tell the audience, <laughs> what is it that we do on the show? And then if you wouldn't mind reminding them a little bit more about our wonderful guest. Of course. Uh, so we are the Internal Medicine Podcast. We use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. That is true. It's true. Okay, good. Still true. Um, and tonight we had the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Bohuma Kabasan Tatanji, and she has a number of really impressive degrees, including an MD, a Master's of Science, a DTMNH, and a PhD. And Dr. Tatanji is a physician scientist at Emory University School of Medicine in Atlanta. She is a self proclaimed enthusiast of all things ID, and she loves sharing that passion with learners at all stages. In her free time, she enjoys blogging for a general audience on global health topics cooking, singing jazz music, and interacting with medical professionals around the globe through the Twitterverse. And you can, and I believe her Twitter handle is, is at Bohuma, so B-O-G-H-U-M-A. That's right. She's a great follow. So with that, let's get on to it. Bohuma, thank you so much for joining us. I'm not sure if Dr. Williams will be back, but we'll, we'll, see, we'll see what's happening with Paul. But we, the show must go on, and uh, Sarah and I are more than capable can you give the audience, in case they haven't heard one of your two previous, uh, as Paul would say, Peabody award-winning <laughs> appearances, you, we talked with you about cellulitis and UTIs, can you tell the audience a one-liner about yourself and maybe tell them what kind of hobby you're into these days? Hi, Matt. Hi, Sarah. It's a delight to be back again at doing ID consults at Cashlight Memorial. Um, I am Bahuma Tutanji. I am an infectious diseases fellow in my fourth year fellowship at Emory University in Atlanta. I'm also a virologist. Um, I finished my PhD in virology prior to my internal medicine training and subsequently my fellowship in infectious diseases. Outside of medicine, I love to cook. I love to garden. And uh, I'm looking forward to the return of live music concerts this summer as uh, hopefully COVID goes away. Yes, things are happening. It's it's very exciting right now. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. That's H-E-L-P. Matt, is there something interfering with your happiness or something perhaps preventing you from achieving your goals? So many things, Paul. Where do, where do I start? <laughs> Am I one of those things? Um, no, not, not actually, Paul. You're, you're a great friend, and uh, I, I, I feel I don't know where I'd be without you. Oh, well, that's awfully sweet, but this isn't about me. This is about BetterHelp, which again is H-E-L-P. They will assess your needs, and they will match you with your own licensed professional therapist. Matt, I know that you're a, a big fan of this particular sponsor. Tell us about your experience. 
That's right, Paul. I was using this. I was using this service, BetterHelp, even before they were a sponsor on the show, which is I was so excited when they reached out to sponsor the show. And we had talked about this several years back that I think depression, mental health disorders are very common among physicians. And if you're like me, you were probably ignoring it or just not getting help uh, because it was something that was very stigmatized until recently. And I think now the two things that made it hard to access mental health help and counseling were that there was stigma and that it was hard to find availability. But this makes it really easy because you can either do phone calls or video calls. You can text with your therapist. The other thing about BetterHelp is if you don't like your therapist, it's pretty easy to change them, which I have actually done. So it's a great service. I can't say enough about it. And I'm I'm so happy that services like this exist because I think not only for our patients, but for us taking care of patients, we need this kind of thing too. Yeah. It's, I mean, access has been sort of a consistent issue and, and BetterHelp seems like they're able to help you pretty quickly. They tell you that you can actually start communicating with a therapist in under 48 hours. So this is this is not a crisis line. This is not self-help, but is actual professional therapy done securely online. And, and they can get it arranged and sort of underway in less than two days, which is kind of remarkable given sort of the current state of affairs. So visit betterhelp.com slash curb. That's better, H-E-L-P. And join the over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional therapists in all 50 states. There's a special offer for our listeners. You can get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com curb. Once again, this podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp and check them out at betterhelp.com curb. Sarah, did you want to read the first case from Cashlack to get us started? Sure, I would love to. So, Ms. Gilda Lilly is a 43-year-old woman who presents with a red, painful, vesicular rash on her left back and shoulder. She reports feeling off since about a week ago, but attributed it to a lack of sleep due to night nursing her infant. The rash began two days ago as an itching, tingling sensation in her upper back, but quickly developed into small, blistered stripes on her torso. Ms. Lilly reports pain and a burning sensation, as well as fatigue and general discomfort. Her vitals are normal, and her temperature is only slightly elevated at 99 degrees Fahrenheit. Right. So, you know, my approach to this case, what you really describe is, at the first, uh, in listening to you read the case, what comes to mind immediately and some of the things I start thinking about, obviously, I start thinking about, does this patient uh, have a case of shingles? And before we actually go into that, I think it's important to just take some time and remind the audience what varicella zoster virus is and uh, the two presentations that this virus is able to cause. So varicella zoster virus is a herpes virus of the alpha herpes virus family. It's a DNA virus, and it's a virus that only infects humans. So humans are the only known reservoir of uh, varicella zoster virus. It causes two types of uh, clinical presentations. In the primary infection with varicella zoster uh, virus, you would present with what we commonly know as chickenpox. However, uh, once you have the resolution of your chickenpox episode, the virus doesn't get eliminated from the body and actually goes into latency in the dorsal uh, ganglia of either your, your spinal uh, nerves or your peripheral nerves and can reactivate later on in life. 
When it reactivates, then it can cause a more localized presentation in the dermatome corresponding to the nerve root where the virus was laying latent. And that later presentation or that reactivation is what we call shingles. Now, the case in which you just read out to me and you described, this patient is 43 years old. And when you think about the prevalence of varicella zoster virus and how common a primary infection is, a majority of adults, actually about 90% of adults in the United States, have already had the primary infection. So if someone is presenting at that age with the symptoms that you describe, immediately in my mind, it's very unlikely that they would be presenting with a primary infection. And I'm thinking that this is likely a reactivation. And also you describe a very localized rash. You'd also describe what appears to have been a prodrome with pain and tingling that was localized to a dermatome and then subsequently followed by the appearance of the rash, which all point to what I think would be a case of shingles. The diagnosis is a clinical diagnosis, and it's a combination of the history that you get from the patient as well as your clinical exam. Now, what does the typical rash look like? It would generally be uh, initially a maculopapular eruption, and then over the course of 24 hours to the first couple of days, it transforms into translucent vesicles and then subsequently into postules before crusting over and scabbing and, and subsequently healing. So I think that our patient has a case of the shingles. So this case seemed like a, a fairly typical presentation. This rash was here and with the itching and tingling, it seemed like maybe it was at the same time, but do you see clinically where they get the symptoms first, like the sensory changes or the pain before the rash appears? That's I, I've, I seem to have seen that quite a few times, but I'm not sure if that's the typical presentation. Actually, only about or a significant portion of patients would have that tingling sensation in the dermatome where the rash uh, subsequently appears. And the percentage is about 75% of patients would have that prodrome of tingling and pain prior to rash or eruption. But there is a 25% uh, of patients who do not have that prodrome and just wake up one morning and they find that they've had this appearance of a rash. So I think while it's useful when it's present, it's not absolutely something that you should hang your hat on as a key piece of what helps you make the diagnosis. Really what should guide you to make your diagnosis should be what the rash looks like and also the fact that the eruption usually is really localized and fits within a single dermatome or at the very maximum two, two adjacent dermatomes. Paul, I just wanted to ask you, like uh, in primary care, I'm sure you've seen a fair amount of shingles at this point in your career. Is it usually pretty obvious to you or do you tend to get like the atypical presentations that you're like, is this shingles? Do you, do you, do you worry about mimics and... I, I do worry about that I, because I feel like maybe, let's say, 40% of the time in a slam dunk home run and I feel great and the patient has some sort of life stressor. They come and they've got the classic rash that had some itching first and you can just feel great about it. I feel like a lot of the time the residents will try to sell me a multidermatomal zoster, which I would love to. <laughs> I would love to hear uh, Boomas um, take on in immunocompetent patients, which I don't think is a, is a terribly common thing. And, and I also will sometimes see sort of more subtle rashes that maybe are kind of dermatomal and it sort of feels right, but also doesn't. So I'm not sure. I guess let me ask, but what are the what are the mimics? What are the things that we should worry about that can sort of look like this, but but are not this? Yeah, I think that that's a very important question because they they can be quite atypical 
uh, rashes that actually are VZV reactivation or at a, an episode of shingles. And I, the mimics that I, I would like to point out is uh, atopic dermatitis and HSV infection or kind of reactivation on a background of atopic dermatitis can really look like VZV in certain instances. Another virus that can also present with a dermatomal rash are Coxsackie viruses. On occasion, you can have a Coxsackie virus infection that would present with a rash that tracks a dermatome, but it's not a VZV reactivation or it's not shingles. And I also um, think about things like echovirus in, in infections that can cause a skin rash and vasculitic lesions can sometimes be a pretty um, a significant mimics. What I would uh, like to remind uh, the listeners is when you see a rash and you think that it might be VZV, and, but it looks atypical and it doesn't really fit the clinical picture, those are the instances where you draw on diagnostic tools to try to get a confirmation of whether this is actually shingles or not. And we can talk a little bit more about the diagnosis or lab- laboratory diagnostics later on. Okay. I think now's a, a decent time to do it, right? Because cause, uh, in this, we've talked about some of the mimics. We've talked about the typical presentation. And with this Miss Gilda Lily, we're pretty sure. But if she was someone who presented a little bit more atypically, what would be the go-to test? I I was sad to be reading that the Zank smear is not as helpful as uh, <laughs> it's kind of falling out of favor. <laughs> Well, you know, it is falling out of favor because the sensitivity of the Zank smear is not great. It's only about 50% uh, sensitive, but it is useful because it's a quick test, right? Because it would at least answer the question whether the lesion that you're dealing with is HSV1, HSV2, or VZV. It can't tell the three apart, but it would tell you, it would at least narrow it down if it's positive to one of those three. Now, if it's negative... The reasons why we often see negative testing is because the Zank smear is very much dependent on the lesions that you sample. So you really have to sample active lesions. And just to remind the audience, uh, the test we're talking about is the direct fluorescence uh, antigen test, which allows you to detect specific antigens that are uh, present in these three viruses that I listed. But you really have to sample a lesion that is active. So you want to look for a vesicle that's not yet scabbed over, and you want to scrape the bottom of the, of the vesicle to then stain that in the hopes of getting a test that would increase the sensitivity. So it's a quick, dirty, cheap test that will be informative, but is not necessarily a slam dunk. Now, other testing that can be done that is more sensitive and more specific is obviously your PCR test. This is a little bit more expensive, but it's also quite quick and you'd get the answer um, from a molecular lab within 24 hours. And that would really answer the question of whether you're dealing with VZV or not. Now, the third diagnostic modality would be uh, virus culture, which unfortunately is not very useful when you're dealing with a case where you need an answer quickly because virus culture is slow and is also less sensitive than your PCR testing. So those would be the three testing modalities that, you know, you would have available to you. But those that are most frequently used would be the smear, the Zank smear, and the PCR testing. And from what I was reading about the PCR, that can be on either the lesions itself or you can do blood, uh, CSF, pretty much any, any of the normal body fluids that we would try to test. 
Absolutely. You can do, um, you can sample any body fluid, but obviously if you have an obvious vesicular rash and you sample that, that is going to be quite high yield. Yeah. Um, in the sense that although people with shingles can have reactivation and have viral replication in the blood, the levels might be quite low. If they don't have a CNS involvement, the yield in the CSF may be quite low as well. So you really want to go for the sampling that would give you the highest yield. So with this case, um, we're talking about that these lesions, right, these vesicles, they have a high viral load or high amount of virus particles there. And this is a 43-year-old Miss Gilda Lilly, and she's actually nursing an infant. What would be the concerns there? Um, Because, you know, sometimes I see patients in the hospital, but whom I'm sure you've seen this too, like they have just like a localized and it's like in their waistband and so it's covered, but they're on like airborne precautions and like people are wearing, uh, you know, this is pre-COVID, people are wearing like COVID style uh, (laughs) um, PPE to go in the room. So what is the proper, what should we do about this infant situation and what would be the proper for just someone with just like a, a dermatomal rash? What kind of precautions do we need? Yeah, despite the fact that with shingles, the rash is localized, VZV does transmit both by droplet, uh, airborne transmission, as well as through contact. So that is why when you have a patient with uh, zoster and active uh, shingles and active vesicular lesions in the hospital, you are going to use both airborne and uh, contact precautions because you really want to prevent them from potentially exposing either hospital staff who are not um, yet exposed uh, to VZV and don't have any immunity or transmitting to immunocompromised patients who may not also have any immunity. So that is what, so far as concerns, sort of the, the, the precautions when, when VZV is, is concerned. Now, in sp- Talking about this particular case and this patient who has a baby and is nursing, you immediately worry about the fact that this baby likely doesn't have any immunity um, uh, to VZV because clearly, um, sorry, if if the mother has shingles, then she's had VZV before. Mm -hmm. So at least you're sure that she has passed on some of her maternal antibodies to the baby. Now, if this was a case of a mother who was presenting with chickenpox, then that is different because Mm -hmm. she doesn't have VZV immunity and has the potential of exposing a baby who is completely naive and is at a risk of having a more severe infection. So in that particular instance, that would be something where you'd be trying to get your pediatric team involved to make sure that the baby has the appropriate prophylactic um, management to ensure that they are covered and protected from infection from a mother who may have potentially exposed them to VZV infection. Now, in the case of, of, of this patient, she already has her rash and she is in the hospital. If this rash is localized, and this is a a case of shingles as we have discussed, the other tips that you could give her to further prevent her from being a source of infection for someone who is naive is to to make sure that when she goes home, that rash is covered. Mm -hmm. And then we can now move on to talk about treatment. Is she a candidate for antiviral therapy? Because the antiviral therapy itself would not only make the lesions heal a lot more quickly and dry up faster, but would also decrease the amount of virus shedding that you get from these active lesions. Now, there's something that you mentioned in the case. Uh, I hadn't talked about this a lot, but the patient is 43. 
that's not really the age at which we typically see shingles present. And if I see a healthy 43-year-old woman presenting with shingles, in the back of my mind, I start asking myself the question, does she have another cause of a decline in her T-cell immunity? Is this someone who has an updated HIV test done? And if they don't, that would be low-hanging fruit to make sure that they get updated screening and that we're not missing out on a new case of HIV diagnosis. That being said, the stresses around pregnancy and delivery itself can be a factor predisposing you to reactivating uh, herpes viruses, including VZV and presenting with shingles. But I just wanted to put that out there. Yeah. Thank you. That's exactly why I included it was because I wanted to ask if the hormonal changes related to the um, postpartum period or even perimenopausal, if she were a bit older, I suppose, um, if that would potentially be a triggering factor for shingles. Yeah. Yeah. Really, any stresses, um, mm-hmm. anything, any periods of stress can uh, potentially um, uh, have an impact on your immunity. And anything that uh, decreases your T-cell immunity decreases the control of the viral latency and increases your possibility of reactivating. So you sometimes see individuals who've just undergone surgery or mm-hmm. who've been in the hospital for some other acute illness And they're really not in that age range where you would expect to see uh, shingles and they develop a shingle episode and we get these consults and oh, he came in for this routine uh, surgery and he developed this rash. Uh, Sorry, news, he has shingles (laughs) because he's in hospital Mm. and he's stressed and he's going through a lot. I wanted to swing back to the treatment uh, for Miss Gilda Lilly here because she's had two days of rash. And uh, I think from what I remember from the, what I've been taught, and this is more anecdotal, within 72 hours, you want to start the antivirals with, with shingles. Um, can you talk about the timing and do you ever start it beyond that, that point and is it, is it worth it? Yes, I, I think that what I would like the audience to know is it's always appropriate to start antiviral therapy so long as there is still active lesions. I really go by the lesions as opposed to really just going by the 72-hour cutoff. So when you examine your patient and you look at the lesions and you look at the rash, what you're looking for is are there still macules and papules? Are there still vesicles? If essentially what you're looking at is lesions that are completely scabbed over and dried off with no active vesicles, then that patient is well beyond the period where you would consider those lesions to be active and to be actively shedding virus. But if you note any areas where you still have the active lesions as I have described, then that patient does meet criteria to be on antivirals, even if they are beyond that 72-hour mark that you would see in a lot of the literature. And what is the treatment that we recommend? Now, before we go into treatment, you really have to make a decision as to, is this a patient that needs to come into the hospital? Or is this a patient that I'm going to send home with treatment? You just described a patient who doesn't seem too ill, who has um, a single dermatomal rash and has a a low-grade fever. That is a patient that sounds to me like someone that I can treat on an outpatient basis. In those instances, you have three options for treatment. Acyclovir, which is normally given at 800 milligrams five times a day. But I'd like to remind the audience, it's very, very difficult to get your patients to really take 
any medication for that matter, up to five times a day. And you have two other options that have a more reasonable, more humane dosing in terms of frequency, which are valacyclovir, one gram, three times a day, and famcyclovir, which is 500 milligrams, three times a day. And I like to draw the attention to the fact that acyclovir is an earlier generation of the same family of nucleotide uh, analogs and has a very poor oral absorption. So even when you compare it with valacyclovir and famcyclovir, I have a preference for valacyclovir and famcyclovir because they have a lot of better oral bioavailability as compared to acyclovir. And that's really why you want to dose it so frequently and in, in, in when, you, when you go with acyclovir. And I wouldn't want to subject any of my patients to that dosing regimen. Now, coming back to this particular case, you threw in a lot of curveballs there. <laughs> she just had a baby. She's breastfeeding. There isn't a lot of data in breastfeeding women with valacyclovir and famcyclovir. So in this particular case, I would still go with acyclovir just because that is where we have data, both in the pediatric population and in the pregnant and breastfeeding population. But if she was 43 and there wasn't a baby in the picture and there wasn't breastfeeding in the picture, it would be one of the other two alternatives. Sarah, this was a very wicked case. And I mean that as a compliment. Very good job. <laughs> Thank you. The... I haven't used famcyclovir as often. Usually I'm using acyclovir, valacyclovir. Is is famcyclovir more more expensive? Is there a reason we don't see it used as often? Is it just a probably people aren't as comfortable with it? A lot of um a lot of institutions don't tend to have it on formulary. So if you wrote a prescription, you would be able to get it. It is it is a drug that is approved, but it's it's just that some hospitals and pharmacies will not have it on formulary and that will be something that they, the pharmacist would come back to you and say, well, but we do have valacyclovir. Do you want to use that? Okay. Um, but if you happen to be uh, in a hospital that has that option, by all means, you should, you should feel quite comfortable going for it at, as well. And I think it's important that I mention for how long do you treat? So generally, if it's a case of uncomplicated um, uh, shingles, then the treatment should be for seven to 10 days at the very maximum. And then you stop. Okay. Now, when I started practicing like 10 years ago, it seemed like a lot of people were getting steroids with shingles uh, and, mm. and the antivirals. And then more recently, when I've been reading about it, it that, that seems to have fallen out of favor um, outside of some certain cases. Would this, would this be someone that you would recommend, this case that we're currently talking about, to get uh, steroids with this? For this case, I would not recommend uh, adjuvant use of steroids. There, there were some small clinical studies that seemed to show some uh, benefit of adding steroids to antiviral therapy. But when a meta-analysis actually looked at combining these studies and looked at the comparison between acyclovir alone versus acyclovir for steroids, it didn't really find any added benefit of the combination of uh, antivirals with steroids. Now, there are clinical entities and complications of uh, shingles that for which steroids would be indicated. But if you're talking about an uncomplicated case, such as the one described um, with this scenario, 
I would not be treating a patient with with a combination of antivirals and steroids. And I would like to add that although we've talked about a, a woman who is 43 years old in this in this case, remember that 60% of shingles cases would happen in individuals who are older than 70. Mm -hmm. And uh, 50% would happen uh, in people who are older than 60. In that population, with adding steroids, you're also running into other comorbidities Hmm. where you really have to be making the judgment as to, am I creating another problem by maybe worsening their diabetes or contributing to their osteoporosis without added benefit on the outcomes for the problem that they're presenting with. So it becomes a little bit more tricky and you really have to have a more uh, serious risk benefit conversation before you start adding things that may not necessarily be more beneficial for the patient. Paul, you know, writing is so easy, isn't it? Like, it's just, it's just easy. It just naturally flows and it's immediate, it immediately sounds great. Man, I suspect that you're joking. I actually think the, the <laughs> writing is is kind of the easy part. Like I, you know, something as long-winded and tortuous as I am when I talk, like I really try to be very clear about things, which is probably why I talk so much. And so the writing and getting something down on paper for me is not that hard. It's the editing and kind of paring things down and making sure that I'm concise and using one word instead of 17 uh, when that's possible. It's making things sort of concise and clear that I certainly struggle with. And I'm not sure what your experience has been, but I, I think our sponsors tonight may be able to help us out. Very true. Very true, Paul. I, I always loved the saying, I would have written you a shorter letter, but I didn't have time. <laughs> right. I think that's very true. That's why I love Grammarly because Grammarly has really helped me save a lot of time. We run a website, we send out weekly show notes, and obviously I'm writing tons of emails all the time. And Grammarly is a product that plugs into my Outlook, my Gmail, follows me all around the web. I can I can use it when I'm using Microsoft Word and, and other products like that. And not only does it help make sure that I'm not making punctuation errors, which I'm I'm not great at those <laughs> at that, Paul. So but it also uh, suggests clarity. It'll highlight phrases and say this is this is worded in such a way that it might be hard for your readers to understand. It might make word suggestions of vocabulary, make you sound smarter. It can even suggest a tone if you tell it what kind of tone you're going for. It is really useful for people who are doing a lot of writing, and I've really enjoyed using it for, I think we've been using it for like six months now, and I'm glad to have it. So if all that sounds appealing to you and you apparently struggle with the written word like Matt and I do, then it sounds like Grammarly is for you. So cut down on your editing time and write more confidently with Grammarly Premium. Get 20% off Grammarly Premium by signing up at Grammarly.com slash curb. That's 20% off at G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash curb. Again, Grammarly.com slash curb to get 20% off of Grammarly Premium. So Sarah, let's let's throw some more curveballs, uh, <laughs> and and why don't why don't you read us the next part of this case here? Absolutely. So Ms. Lilly returns to the clinic several months later. She reports that despite completing the prescribed course of antiviral medication and using over-the-counter pain medications to manage discomfort, she is still experiencing significant pain and a burning sensation in the areas where the rash had been. The rash is completely healed, and Ms. Lilly reports the pain is mostly on her left side. All vitals are normal. Right. Now, it sounds like after our patient's episode of of shingles, she's now presenting with post-herpetic neuralgia. And that's one of the most uh, common complications of patients who have shingles. 
What is post-herpetic neuralgia? This is essentially pain that persists in, in the dermatome where the, the shingles eruption happened at least greater than three months after the initial episode. And when these patients present, such as in the case that you just described, uh, the rash is completely healed, but they would describe to you this sensation of burning pain uh, localized to, to where the rash was. In certain instances, it may be associated with itching. It may be associated with some numbness or tingling or some altered sensation in that area. Now, how do we treat post-herpetic neuralgia? The diagnosis would usually be clinical, right? So it would be someone who has recently had an episode of shingles that resolved and is presenting three months out with persistent pain in that dermatome. Now, really the first line therapies for treating post-herpetic um, uh, neuralgia are your gabapentinoids. So I'm thinking specifically gabapentin, I'm thinking about pregabalin, and those are the medications that I would normally be reaching for in patients who present like this. With both medications, we usually recommend doing a slow titration. So with gabapentin, I would normally start with about 300 milligrams on the first day and then dialing up to 300 milligrams twice a day on the second day and then 300 milligrams TID by the third day knowing that you can continue up, up titrating up to about 3,600 milligrams total a day, which is kind of getting to that max range. Yeah, that's with a pre -gabalin, lot. <laughs> yeah, with pregabalin, uh, you're thinking about 150 milligrams initially and then maxing out about uh, 300. A lot of patients will have a good response, right about 300 milligrams TID. At least that's been the experience with the patients that I have seen who have presented with uh, post-herpetic neuralgia. What are your other options? And that's with options? gabapentin, the 300 TID of gabapentin? Yes, mean? 300 TID of gabapentin. And with, with pregabalin, I've hardly had to go above the 150 milligrams. Oh, of and a total dose. Use, yes, of a total dose. Uh, and again, that's divided into three doses. And they would usually have significant relief. Uh, by the time you, you initiate and you've, you've titrated and they're at their three times a day dose. Now, if patients don't respond, there are other alternatives um, that you could use. Normally, some patients you can think of using tricyclic antidepressant medications, which also would give a lot of relief. But again, we are talking about a case of a 43-year-old patient. Right. But these usually occur in the much older population. Mm. And a lot of these medications that we tend to use for post-herpetic neuralgia can also cause confusion and falls mm. in older patients. And so it's usually a little bit of a catch-22, how much you, you, you can give and get away with either the cholinergic, um, uh, anticholinergic effects of TCAs or kind of the associated drowsiness that can occur with gabapentinoids. Right. Mm -hmm. So in and these cases are, these are where... all on the beers list for our exactly, geriatricians exactly. out there. We're, we're aware of the beers list. Uh, we're just talking <laughs> hypotheticals. Don't, <laughs> don't send us hate mail. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but in instances where you have patients where you're thinking, oh, this is a patient that's already struggling with confusion and dementia and sundowning, and mm -hmm. I don't want to make those things worse. What are other things that you can think about? You can think about local therapies like lidocaine which mm. can also be quite effective in some of these cases. 
capsaicin uh, cream can also be used, but it's not very well tolerated by a lot of patients because it can cause local burning initially that may feel worse than the pain of post-herpetic neuralgia. And usually if you have tried these agents, you can think about using opioids at the lower dose uh, as well. Some patients may get benefits from that. But you also always have to remember that you may be creating a dependency problem if you're starting to use opioids. By the time I have gone through the list of these four medications and I'm still not getting relief, that to me is a cue that I need to pass this on to the pain clinic because there are other options that you can consider. There are botulinum injections that can be used. There are intrathecal steroid therapies that can be used and lots of other options that a pain clinic would be able to offer that you may not be able to offer in your primary health clinic. So I think it's important for the audience to remember to know when to refer the patient so that they can explore additional options. But generally, I've had quite good results with some of the initial therapies that I have listed so far. Bahuma, I wanted to just swing back to, for Miss Lily, usually patients are not, what they get, they, I see them, they have shingles, they're in significant pain. That's the main reason they're coming to me. And so from the start, I'm trying things. And it's usually not like, I treat them with valacyclovir, they disappear for three months, and then they come back. Um, Usually there's been some, like even before the three-month period, sometimes I've forced to dip into some of these medications, trying gabapentin or TCAs. I I have had some patients that were really in a lot of pain. And yeah, it's tough. I I find, uh, I'm not sure what other people out there think, but I find this to be one of the frustrating ones where you feel really bad for some of the patients. You just can't get relief and um, I've had some older adults who don't tolerate the opioids or the gabapentin or the TCAs. Uh, I, they've been in enough pain that I thought the risk benefit wise, we had to try it. But yeah. um, would a topical and I, I ever absolutely, be? Sorry. Yes. Yes, Sarah. Um, I'm just, I was just curious if something like, um, I believe, I don't know if I'm allowed to say brand names, uh, diclofenac gel, is that correct? Or like a topical enzyme? Yeah, topical yeah, I mean, I, I think, but it's it's not, I mean, this is a neuropathic pain and right. typically we, we think topical NSAIDs more for like the, the joint pains, okay, which for is an inflammation. kind of interesting why, you know, oral analgesics like acetaminophen, I guess maybe that works, but oral NSAIDs, I feel like it's weird that they would be used for a neuropathic pain. Hmm. Well, in, in the acute phase though, in the acute phase, right around the time when they still have the rash and they're presenting with pain. NSAIDs can work because there is an inflammatory component to that pain at that particular time. So it's an inflammatory neuritis and some patients might get some response with NSAIDs Mm. at that particular time. But if you're talking about post-herpetic neuralgia at the time when the rash is completely resolved, that's really when diminishing returns uh, start to set in. If you're still reaching for your non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, they really are not going to work um, for those fellows who are presenting later with what is purely a neuropathic type of pain. Yeah. Thank you. Yes. So it is a it is a tough one. So Miss Lily, let's say we get lucky and she's she she has her kidneys function well, so we don't have to worry too much about the gabapentin pregabalin and she she does well on the three hundred of gabapentin three times a day and uh eventually she's able to go off it, although from what I was reading, some patients never get rid of this posterpetic neuralgia, which just seems super grim. <laughs> uh like many of the pain conditions we treat, uh, sometimes it doesn't go away. Well, 
if we mixed up, I, I do want to talk vaccines a little bit here, mm-hmm. um, but I did want to just ask, like, if Miss Lily, let's take the infant out of the situation, but instead, what if we gave her a renal transplant and mm-hmm. now she's presenting with this rash and uh, and, and she has a fever uh, and, and we decide we're, we're going to admit her to the hospital but whom I feel like we really need your help for this. We're going to be consulting infectious diseases. Does that seem appropriate? That seems appropriate. And not only infectious diseases, but probably transplant infectious diseases because she's right. immunocompromised because she has a transplant. Yes, if you're talking about um, uh, shingles in an immunocompromised patient, then you have to be a lot more careful because these tend to be more severe in nature. So these are the patients that are more likely not only to have a localized eruption and one dermatome affected, but can have multidermatomal disease, which would qualify them as having severe disease. They can also have more constitutional symptoms. So a higher fever, more uh, malaise, and really looking acutely sick. And they can also have a higher rates of visceral complications. So I'm thinking about pneumonia and pneumonitis, I'm thinking about a hepatitis, I'm thinking about meningitis and encephalitis. So essentially, these are patients where you have to have a more heightened sense of, I need to be very proactive about engaging the infectious diseases experts early on and admitting them into the hospital because they are likely to need IV therapy to treat their disease. So if I decide that I'm admitting someone into the hospital with shingles, first of all, that tells me that they're sick enough to come into the hospital. That also tells me that I'm not going to be starting out their therapy with oral antivirals. I would be starting them with IV antivirals. And in this instance, I would be going with a cyclovir at 10 milligrams per kilogram every eight hours. And usually we would keep them on IVA cyclovir until we start seeing resolution of some of these lesions. And when I talk about resolution, it's really doing an exam every day and making sure that you're not seeing vesicles appear in other dermatomes. And this is really just uh, localized to the few dermatomes where it presented and that the patient is responding adequately to therapy and that the lesions are resolving. And you also want to have a, a, a heightened awareness of some of these other complications that I mentioned, notably the visceral complications with possibility of pneumonitis, because uh, pneumonia from VZV can actually have a mortality of anywhere between 10 to 20 percent. So it's quite a severe complication when it does occur. And the mainstay of treatment really is still IV um, antiviral therapy. The use of steroids in this scenario is very controversial. And generally, we would not use it if the complication is pneumonia. So it would purely just be IV cyclovir and close monitoring as well as supportive care. Now that we are talking complications, I think it's also important to mention some of the other clinical entities that meet the criteria for complications, which may not necessarily be multidermatomal disease or a pneumonitis or hepatitis, but should still buy a patient an admission into hospital. And I'm thinking about ophthalmic zoster. So uh, zoster ophthalmicus, which is a sight-threatening condition. One of the things that I would like to point out to the audience is when you're looking at the lesions, one of the very important predictors of zoster ophthalmicus is look for vesicles around 
the tip of the nose. These are very predictive that the branch of the trigeminal nerve, ophthalmic branch of the trigeminal nerve, is implicated in the reactivation. Sometimes mm-hmm. I've seen a case of at Cashlack Memorial where a patient presented with what essentially looked like a pimple at the tip of his oh nose gosh. and pain. And this was a patient who was an organ transplant patient. And we had wow. come to see the patient because of his organ transplant and constitutional symptoms. And we found what essentially turned out to be zoster uh, optomicus. So really, really a strong predictor. And the primary team had thought that that was just a pimple. This was actually oh. a lesion that we later on took a like sample a postular... of. Yes, it was a postular lesion at the tip of his nose. And he didn't have wow. the classic florid rash. Other things that hmm. you want to think about when um, you suspect zoster ophthalmicus get ophthalmology involved so that they can perform an eye exam because these patients would develop keratitis, ureitis, and sometimes there is an indication for adjuvant topical steroids as a component of the treatment. But that's not a decision that the internist should be making. That really should be the call of the ophthalmologist if they're going to go with um, steroid eye drops for these individuals. And we will treat them, as I mentioned, with IV cyclovir until when the lesions are drying up and healing, then you can transition them to one of the oral therapies that I mentioned. I usually would go for vilacyclovir one gram every eight hours, and I would continue the treatment for another seven days after the IV therapy. So for a total of about 14 days. The second complication I wanted to talk about is acute retinal necrosis. And this is another life-threatening complication of VZV reactivation, which we frequently see in our HIV immunocompromised patients with advanced disease who have AIDS. So this is a patient who would present with decreased visual acuity and ocular pain. Frequently, this is unilateral you have to be really unfortunate to present with bilateral pain. But if, for instance, our 43-year-old patient was a patient with AIDS and a CD4 count of less than 50, and they presented with decreased visual acuity and unilateral ocular pain, that for me is an ophthalmological emergency. I'm going to call the ophthalmologist in the middle of the night to come examine this patient's eye. Because in these instances, some of these patients would benefit from intraocular antivirals as well as systemic antivirals for their treatment. And in this instance, we would give them IV therapy uh, for about two weeks in the hospital. But then the taper with oral antivirals is much longer. It's up to six weeks. And this is expert opinion because there really aren't any randomized controlled trials that look at uh, the duration of therapy in the case of acute retinal necrosis. But I wanted to put that out there because it's a very important diagnosis not to miss. And because I linked it to patients presenting with AIDS, it's important to point out that the important differential diagnosis for that is CMV retinitis, which is painless. So a patient with decreased visual acuity and painless eye think CMV, but if the eye is painful and they have AIDS, call your ophthalmologist, even if it's on a weekend, 
because you don't want to miss that diagnosis. Now that brings us to the third complication that I want to talk about, which is Ramsey-Hunt syndrome. And that is the combination of both ipsilateral uh, uh, facial paralysis, uh, vesicles in the auditory canal, as well as ear pain on one side. And that tends to happen when you have a reactivation of zasta in the geniculate nucleus of the facial nerve, and it also extends to the eight cranial nerve, so um, your auditory nerve. And patients present with usually a facial paralysis that is way more profound than would be for um, just an idiopathic Bell's palsy. In that particular instance, you also want to get your ENT colleagues involved just to make sure that they are on board with that. And that, again, is one of the scenarios where steroids plus antiviral therapy is indicated to help improve the recovery for these patients who sometimes don't quite fully recover from their facial paralysis even long after the vesicles are healed. Now, there are other neurologic complications such as a meningitis, and encephalitis, the patients with meningitis would present with your classic meningitis symptoms, headaches, photophobia, neck stiffness, and if you did an, an, a, a lumbar puncture and sent off some CSF, and for PCR with VZV, that would normally pick it up. In these patients, you're also treating them with IV acyclovir for up to 14 to 21 days if you're treating a meningitis. Yeah, this is these are scary complications. Fortunately, most of what we see uh, especially in primary care or hospital medicine are the, you know, just the people with a rash and they sometimes if they're in the hospital, they're there for something else altogether. Bahuma, I wanted to ask, let's let's throw yet another curveball. Miss Lily, like her life is just very complicated all around this shingles here. Her brother is visiting from college. He's 18 years old. So you would think he's, he'd had the varicella zoster uh, vaccination, but actually he never had it. And also, he happens to have a renal transplant, and he's on immunosuppression. So does he need to be worried now, hanging out with his sister, Miss Lily, who has this active uh, shingles right now? Oh, boy. Yes, <laughs> he does need to be worried um, because he is certainly at a high risk of getting chickenpox if he comes in contact with VZV and because of his underlying immunosuppression. And the fact that he's never been vaccinated, he's likely to develop a severe uh, case if he does get sick. So what do we do for these individuals who are high risk and have had a high risk contact with someone who has varicella? Either they have been in contact with someone with chickenpox, say, for instance, his dorm mate in college had chickenpox, or in this instance, his sister has had a case of shingles. Now, these are the people who are really ideal for getting varicella zoster IgG infusions. Um, so that is, that is available. And you can give this um, IgG, uh, VZIG, as we call it, to individuals who are high risk, don't have a history of vaccination, and may not be a candidate to get the varicella vaccine, which is a live attenuated vaccine, because of their underlying immunosuppression. So... You want to generally give it uh, to these individuals when they present less than 10 days from that high-risk exposure. So you have up to 10 days where you're still likely to catch them um, in the incubation window of varicella, which is anywhere between 10 
to 21 days. Now, if you're going to go with VZIG, you would normally go for an adult that is over 40 kilograms in weight. It's usually 625 international units. It's a single dose. It's an infusion that they can get usually in the emergency room that would not even require them to be admitted into hospital. Now, it's sometimes not available in the hospital pharmacy. And the question that you get is, can you give just regular IVIG to these individuals? And the answer is yes, because the difference between VZIG and IVIG is that VZIG is just concentrated and they have essentially just isolated the immunoglobulins that are specific to varicella azoster virus. But in your IVIG, you have all the immunoglobulins in there. So even the VZIG is a component of the IVIG, and you can give that if you don't have VZIG in your pharmacy. Now, if you're going with IVIG, the dosing is usually, I believe, 400 milligrams per kilogram, also as a single infusion. Bear in mind that you don't know the exact quantity of VZIG-specific mm-hmm. antibody that is contained in your IVIG because that would vary from one lot to another depending on the plasma from which it's derived. So um, that's that's kind of like uh, the options that you have for these individuals. And there is evidence that that decreases the chances that they would then go on uh, to develop an, an acute infection, or at least you hope that if they did develop an infection, it would not be quite as severe as if they hadn't uh, received any prophylaxis at all. Now, if in this particular case, this brother of your patient was not immunocompromised, then he would not be a candidate to receive mm-hmm. IVIG or VZIG. However, this is someone who would be a candidate for vaccination. And in this instance, because he's never been vaccinated before, you will be thinking about giving him the varicella vaccine, which is the live attenuated vaccine. It's a two-dose vaccine, um, which are two doses that can be given four to eight weeks apart. In the pediatric population, it exists also in the combination form with measles, mumps, rubella, and varicella in the vaccine. And it also exists as a single vaccine on its own. Now, if you're vaccinating adolescents older than 13, up to patients who are in their teenage years and adults, you usually use the the single antigen vaccine, which is just your varicella vaccine. And he should get that if he presents within five days of his exposure. And you don't need to check an antibody level before you give him um, that vaccine. Now, the other question that I get in cases of post-exposure is, is there a role for these individuals to get antivirals at all? What if they cannot access a healthcare facility that has the vaccine? Can you give them an antiviral to prevent them from developing infection? You can do that. Generally, we recommend in individuals who are not immunocompromised to start the antiviral prophylaxis about a week after the exposure. And the reason why there is that delay is there's some schools of thought that allowing a week may lead to some low-level replication when during that incubation period that may actually be beneficial in building immunity, even if the patient doesn't get 
full-blown chickenpox. And you don't want to completely squash that immunity. So you start the prophylaxis one week after the exposure, and they get a week of treatment with, again, either valacyclovir, famcyclovir, or acyclovir at the treatment doses, and the prophylaxis is for seven days. Now, remember, the varicella vaccine is a life attenuated vaccine. So it's a virus and that virus is susceptible to the antivirals. So if you've Mm -hmm. given someone antiviral for prophylaxis, you don't want them to finish their antivirals and get their vaccine the next day because you would essentially be targeting the vaccine with the antivirals they just took. So you want to make sure that in that instance, they're getting vaccinated a month after their prophylaxis. Now, for people who've received IVIG and who may not be completely not a candidate for vaccination, if you're going to give them a varicella vaccine, then you want to wait at least five months because, again, the IVIG has the potential of muting the response to the vaccine and you don't want that to happen. So for the optimal vaccine response, you want to wait up to five months before you start the vaccine series. So we we save Miss Lily's brother. Sarah, tell us do do things do things get better for her? Can she rest easy? You know, I have bad news for Miss Gilda Lily. Um her mother actually, Ms. Vera Sella, recently went to her doctor. And while at the doctor, she mentions that and she's just there for a routine visit, getting her annual physical exam, getting her blood pressure meds, diabetes meds, everything refilled. Um, and she just casually mentions that uh, her grandson. So now I feel like it's getting into a soap opera. I need a timeline or something <laughs> to explain. This is not this is not Ms. Gilda Lily's <laughs> son. This is a different this is a different grandson. So she mentions at the visit that her grandson recently had chicken pox and she remembers how awful it was when she had it as a girl and she was just making conversation. And Ms. Sella is up to date on her recommended screenings and immunizations, but she has not actually had a shingles vaccine. So would she be a good candidate? Yes, absolutely. She would be an excellent candidate for the for the shingles vaccine. And just again, to remind the audience, we just finished talking about the varicella vaccine, which is the chickenpox vaccine. And now we're moving to what's talking about the herpes zoster vaccine, which is the shingles uh, vaccine. Now, the shingles vaccine, there are two vaccines um, that are available uh, for shingles. You have the recombinant uh, uh, vaccine, which is essentially uh, a protein vaccine that contains the glycoprotein E of the virus with the combination of an adjuvant. And that is the most recent vaccine that is currently uh, licensed in the U.S. And then you also have an older vaccine that's currently being phased out, the live attenuated um, uh, vaccine. Now, why is it important for individuals older than 50 to get the, the shingles vaccine? As I mentioned before, that is the age range in which we see the most number of cases of reactivation, because as we get older, our T-cell immunity declines. And with that decline, our ability to control the latency and keep VZV latent wanes, and then you're more prone to getting reactivations. So every year in the US, the burden of shingles is really in that older than 60, older than 70 population. And there is clear evidence that these vaccines decrease not only the prevalence of shingles, but also decrease the prevalence of 
um, post-herpetic neuralgia. Now for the recombinant vaccine, which is the one that is currently recommended and that is authorized in the U.S., in the studies that were conducted in individuals older than 50, it actually led to a reduction in shingles of up to 90% over a 3.7-year mm-hmm. follow-up. And it decreased the incidence of post-herpetic neuralgia by 89%. Now, this is our incredible numbers, and you can actually see the clear benefit of getting vaccinated in this age group. Now, when you compare this to the older vaccine, which was the live attenuated vaccine, the live attenuated vaccine was way less effective. And in the studies of that uh, live attenuated vaccine way back when it was licensed, it only decreased shingles by 51% and reduced Mm -hmm. post-herpetic neuralgia by about 67%. But when they further looked at the group of individuals older than 70, in that age group, it was even less effective at decreasing post-herpetic neuralgia and the efficacy dropped to about the 30s um, in terms of percentages. Also, with the data of the follow-up with vaccination with the live attenuated vaccine, we now know that immunity from that vaccine wanes between five and eight years. So these are individuals that would need to be revaccinated if we were still using that vaccine. So the recombinant vaccine is by far superior for the two reasons that I have mentioned and is what is currently recommended as first-line treatment. Now, individuals who previously had gotten the live attenuated vaccine should be offered revaccination with the recombinant vaccine. They don't need to wait. If you have an individual who's had shingles, you wait for their lesion to resolve, and when they have complete resolution of their active lesions, you can start the vaccination series. Now, the recombinant vaccine is a two-dose vaccine, And you can give the two doses at an interval. They should be spaced anywhere between two months and six months. The live attenuated vaccine, which I'm aware we have an international audience and maybe what's available in some other countries, is a single dose vaccine that is given subcutaneously. So that can still be offered when you don't have access um, to the recombinant vaccine. And I'd also like to mention that another pitfall with the live attenuated vaccine is it wasn't really a vaccine that we recommended for use in patients with immunosuppression or solid organ transplants, patients with AIDS, because there's always the chance that you could get disease from the live attenuated vaccine, which is just an an alternated or an attenuated form of the virus itself and can, in rare occasions, cause disseminated infection in immunocompromised individuals. Yeah, this is... it it always kind of tripped me up a little bit that there's two vaccines, right? There's the, cause when I, I got it the old fashioned way, my parents had a chicken pox party in the eighties and you know, my siblings and I all got it. There's a great South Park episode making fun of this whole practice. And I think people were trying to have COVID par- parties early in the pandemic as well, which <laughs> was not, Thanks. not a good idea. Not advisable. <laughs> right. Um, but how do we know if somebody, how do we know if somebody has had chickenpox or when do we, who do we assume immunity for? I I think this is something that might come up clinically. Yeah. The the current um, estimates, um, as I mentioned before, is that in in the U.S. adults, uh, over 90% of adults have had (laughs) contact with BZV. And 
there is also a lot of difficulty with getting people to accurately remember if they've had chicken pox as a child uh, mm, before sure. or not. And believe it or not, about 70% of people would not remember if they've ever mm. had um, chicken pox or not. Now, generally, the, the, the recommendation is that if you have individuals who were born outside of the U.S. and who come in and you don't have any record of their vaccination status, that would be individuals in whom it would be appropriate to check varicella antibody levels before knowing whether you need to offer them varicella vaccination or not. And also individuals who were born in the U.S. after 1980, um, you can offer, but it's not an absolute prerequisite. You can go ahead and vaccinate if the person doesn't have any recollection of being vaccinated. Um, you can give them the varicella vaccine if they tell you they've not had chickenpox before, so far as they don't have any of the contraindications. And just to remind the audience, the contraindications obviously are immunosuppression. Patients who are solid organ transplants have advanced malignancy and mm -hmm. on chemotherapy. Pregnant women, patients with advanced HIV. So Patients who have uh, the risk for developing severe VZV should not be given a live vaccine. Uh, the good thing about the recombinant vaccine is that these immunocompromised patients are actually eligible to get this recombinant vaccine because it is a protein vaccine and they are also at risk for getting severe shingles with complications as we've discussed if they do get reactivation and in our um, transplant population and other immunocompromised population, they should get the recombinant zoster vaccine. Right. Assuming they had it as a kid. Exactly. Or they exactly. had the either. Yeah. So this, this brings up, and I, I asked you this a little bit in pre-recording, but we, we didn't get to dig into it because I wanted to do this on air. In a post-vaccine world, Let's say in the future, when everyone's been in the U.S. has been vaccinated for varicella, is shingles going to go away? I mean, but they are getting a live vaccine, right? So they're getting the live VZV virus as a kid to so they don't get chicken pox. Yeah. Can that reactivate and cause shingles? Or once once we have this whole vaccinated population, is it going to go away? Well, actually, on rare occasions, the, the vaccine strain of the virus can reactivate and cause shingles. Not only can mm -hmm. it reactivate and cause shingles, it can also post-vaccination cause chickenpox in people who receive oh, the vaccine. So you can get a rash that is much milder than a chickenpox rash, but it is evidence of the fact that you just got vaccinated with, um, with, with right. a live attenuated version mm -hmm. of the virus. Fortunately, these um, clinical manifestations from the, the virus strains are extremely rare uh, and do not happen, happen often, but they have been described in the, in the literature, and it's, it's important for the audience to, to be aware of those. So, when all so the people... to answer your question, I, I don't think that we would completely eliminate it um, in, just through vaccination, so far as we are still giving vaccination with the life attenuated because there's always a chance that the life attenuated vaccine sure. can reactivate. Yeah. I just wonder if uh, shingles will become less and less common as the people before, be born before 1980 or, you know, that had the natural, that got VZV the old fashioned way. Once all those people are gone, if, if shingles is going to be that more, it sounds like it'll be much less common if it's a, a completely I vaccinated population. I certainly hope that it, uh, the, the rates will decrease because we do know that the vaccines uh, certainly 
reduce significantly uh, your risk of reactivation. Um, yeah. And really reactivation is key to, the key to reactivation is sort of maintaining that T-cell immunity uh, that really is great at keeping VZV in check when it works, right? So if, you, if you're able to, to keep that T-cell immunity working, then you really should keep the, the virus latent and you should not have reactivation. Well, I think we've really done hero's work. This was a, a quite a master class on this topic of VZV, shingles. Can you give the audience a couple take-home points that you really want them to remember or if you had any like last-minute pearls that you wanted to bestow upon them, now's the time. All right, my take-home message for the audience is VZV is everywhere. You are going to encounter it in your practice, either in the form of chickenpox or in the form of shingles. It's important to recognize that these are two clinical syndromes that are caused by the same virus. I also want them to be able to identify cases that are severe and need urgent medical attention and benefit from early IV anti antiviral therapy. And also recognize that if you take care of these patients early and you treat them properly, you're also decreasing the risk that they would develop complications that can be quite debilitating. And to remember that vaccines work and we now have really effective vaccines, not only to prevent a varicella, uh, which is chickenpox, uh, the primary presentation of BZV, but we also have vaccines that work incredibly well to prevent its reactivation presentation in the form of shingles. And we should advocate for our patients to make sure that they are immunized. So with that, we will go to the outro. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. <laughs> so glad you're here, Sarah. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com and sign up to receive our mailing list to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. We're committed to providing you with high-value, practice-changing knowledge, and to do that, we need your feedback, so please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts. You can contact us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to Sarah Roberts for producing this episode, and to our social media team, Beth Garbs Garbatelli on Twitter, Maddie Mad Dog Morgan on Instagram, MJ Allen and Jeff Carter are on the transcription team. Tima Karganov is on the website. And Chris the Chew Man Chew is on Facebook. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Wado. A Dr. Bahuma Titanji was my pleasure. And thanks to Stuart for composing our theme music and Claire Morgan of Notterly for editing our audio. As always, this has been Paul Williams. I'm just kidding. It's Sarah <laughs> Phoebe Roberts. Thank you and good night. All right. <laughs>